we are going to get started and we're going to spend some time in God's Word this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 one final time. And, and as you're doing that and, and as you're getting settled, um, I do encourage you to come back out tonight for our, our prayer first prayer meeting. So it's always an important time for our church family. We do that the first Sunday of every month and, and we'll have some, some you know, different focuses every time. Our focus tonight will be on Hungary and the Horvaths and, and um, uh, what, they're, what they're doing there in Hungary. So we'll have some updates for you on that tonight and some prayer requests. And then we'll have other prayer requests for Albania and for Columbus and for First Baptist Church in general. So again, everybody's invited back. Come back. That's a great family time. And then invite someone to come with you next, next week. Um, so we'll be continuing our study in the book of Acts. Next Sunday on Easter, we'll be at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. But in Acts chapter 3, we're going to see the lame man get healed. And it's a great picture of the resurrection. And, and the gospel message will be in there. So invite your lost friends, invite family to come out. Um, we will also, for everybody that has kids, uh, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt right out back here in the, in the uh, lawn right after the service. And so for, I think it's... What two years old through fifth grade? Got it. Two years old through fifth grade, and so uh, we'll give you all those instructions next week. But you can invite people for that as well. And if the, if you know people that have kids, uh, that'll be a, that'll be a great time immediately following the service uh, next Sunday at Easter. But today we're going to finish out Acts chapter two, studying verses forty one through forty seven. And and this chapter, if you've been with us throughout this chapter, has been one that has been very very heavy in doctrine. We've talked about a transitioning dispensation. We've talked about the baptism of the Holy Ghost versus the baptism of fire, how those are two very different things, even though some charismatic doctrine would like to put them together into one. We've talked about the baptism of repentance with John and the baptism of repentance with Peter. Uh, four of the seven baptisms we've teached, we've looked at uh, in this one chapter. We've talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about tongues. We've talked about the heresy of baptismal regeneration. We talked very briefly last week about the new covenant that God made with Israel, with the indwelling Holy Spirit being a part of that. So I'm, I'm tired talking about all of it even. I mean, it's just on and on and on. We've been, we've been in some deep waters um, these pa past few Sundays and talking about some deep topics. But they were important to go through, very important to go through, because Acts chapter 2 may be the most misunderstood chapter in the entire Bible, the one that is, is uh, incorrectly divided maybe more than any other, or at least the one chapter from which the most false doctrine emerges. So all that was, you know, at least in my opinion, very necessary to go through and to dive into a little bit. Um, but today we're going to end this chapter by taking a little bit more of a, a practical look at some factors involved in a church done right. That's our title for today's message, The Church Done Right. Because even if you haven't fully understood, I know we were moving through some, some deep waters and we were moving through them at a, at a pretty good pace. Um, so even if you didn't fully get everything that we've talked about these past few weeks, what we've discussed through this chapter, what should have been obvious, what should be easy to understand is that we've definitely seen God at work. And in large part, he was at work through the birth of the church. Now, as, as again, as we've talked about at some length, the church in Acts chapter 2 is much different than the church that we know today. 
this point in history, it was Jewish, it was transitional. They were entering, we'll see this today, even they were entering the church through baptism, not faith in the finished work of Christ. We've, we've talked about all of that. We'll talk about that a little bit more today. But listen, make no mistake about it, it was the church. And this morning, we're going to see it done right. There's important lessons we can learn from this first century Jewish church in Jerusalem. Now again, the lessons play out differently in application for us than it did for them, but God still wants to teach us something here. I'm, I'm confident of that. There are certainly some things we need to learn this morning. Because as I just mentioned, God was at work in a very powerful and mighty way, and, and this shouldn't come as a huge surprise to us if, if, if we read through the Gospels because he promised he would do that. In Matthew 16, 18, he told his disciples, and I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I want to talk about a wrongly divided, misunderstood verse. This is one of them, you know, Matthew 16, 18. But we're not studying the book of Matthew, so I'm not going to take the time to go through it. I do want you to know this verse is not saying that Peter was the first pope, um, and Peter wasn't even the rock. The rock was Jesus Christ. But putting all that aside, Jesus says plainly in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. That word is used there in Matthew 16. And that's exactly what he's doing in Acts chapter 2. He's building his church, and he's still doing that today, by the way. Now, the problem is, in, in these days, and what we would know as Laodicea, many people, even some that are well-intentioned, are fighting against Jesus in that endeavor, even many people within the church. And they're fighting against Jesus. His desire is that he builds the church, and he said that he would do it. But there are those out there that want to build it their own way, and so Jesus lets them do it. He lets them build it their own way. But that doesn't mean there aren't exceptions. Jesus is still building his church. There are and there can be more that do it the right way. And I put this on your outline sheet because Jesus will build his church, but only if we follow the instructions laid out in the word of God. We have to do it his way. We don't get to make up the rules. We don't get to decide how, how, how things look right for us or how we want to go about them. God actually tells us how we're to do this thing. And so we have to do it his way. And listen, we want to do it his way, I promise you. We want Jesus to build this church because what good is it if we build something in our own power? Doing it our own way. According to the Bible, that's vain. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. And what we are going to see in our text this morning are, is some of the primary ways in which the Lord builds the church. These are the things we need to have in order if we want to do it the way God has laid it out. These are the fundamentals that we can never lose sight of, that we will keep before ourselves. I will keep before, before you all of these things that we're talking about, today, talking about today over and over. So let's look at this passage. Let's see what God has for us. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read verses 41 through 47. And in verse 41, the Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. So we're obviously we're coming off of 
Peter's long sermon and then realizing, being convicted and asking the question, man, what do we do now, Lord? And, and, and Peter answers him, tells him that they need to repent and be baptized. And that's when we get to verse 41, they gladly received his word, were baptized. The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. All right, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and see what, see what he'll teach us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today in need of you. We are, we're in need of, of hearing from you uh, today. We're in need of hearing from you every day. And so, Lord, I, pr I pray that you do just that. I pray that you speak to us clearly. I pray that it's your words and not mine. I pray that you move me out of the way. And, and Lord, that you're glorified in all that is said and done. And, and your Holy Spirit works in our heart. I pray that we soften our hearts enough. Lord, to let your word penetrate them and, and change us uh, from the inside out. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as personal Savior, Lord, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit does a special work in them and, and Lord, convicts them and, and, and gives them the understanding of their need for a Savior and that they would get that settled today and that they would place their faith in, in your finished work on the cross, what you did for us in your death, burial, and resurrection. And, and Lord, we're just so grateful to be here. We're so grateful for for the day that's in front of us, that so we get to spend time worshiping you. We spend time in your word. We'll come back tonight as a family to spend time praying. And Lord, this is, this is what this life is about and, and to, to, to motivate us and to teach us to go out into the world and to take uh, your word to them. And so Lord, be with us today. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word and I pray that you're glorified uh, through all of it. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what we just read is, is just an incredible ending to an incredible chapter. So you see uh, the power of God's word going forward in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Peter preached the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 of the multitude that heard this responded. 3,000 received the word gladly. So the church goes from 120 to 3,120 in one sermon. Now, you know, all I can say is I guess that was a different time. I mean, we're, listen, we're announcing new members at the end of the service today, but I think we're adding three today. Um, and, praise, and praise the Lord for that. We're super excited about that. Because um, certainly our, our, our focus is always on spiritual health over the numbers. We don't get caught up in that. Uh, we're concerned about spiritual growth over physical growth. But... There should never be any doubt that where God is working, there is life. And there's new life. So we see here in Acts 2, God was working in 3,000 were added to the church. There's, there's new life. That is what Christ brings. And that's always what Christ brings. And it's always in contrast to the law, to legalism, to church growth methodology that isn't biblical because that may bring in more people, but that doesn't bring in life. There's a difference. So there's a difference in what God does and, and what the world tries to do. And so I just want you to consider this comparison because you see it in Scripture. 
Because at the giving of the Spirit, here in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 were given life. 3,000 were given life, right? That's just what, what we just read. But what I want you to see, and I don't want you to miss the beauty and the symmetry in God's Word, is that the giving of the law, 3,000 were killed. 3,000 were killed when God gave the law. Look at Exodus 32, starting at verse 25. And this is in response to the children of Israel making the golden calf while Moses was on Mount Sinai, receiving the law from God. And they were dancing before it. And Moses comes down and sees all the mess that's going on. And look at what he says in verse 25. When Moses saw the people that were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? This is one of my favorite verses. Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. So see the contrast. The law killeth. But the Spirit giveth life. And that is true of individuals. That's true in our life personally. That is true of churches collectively. That is true of our church as a whole. Paul told us this very thing in 2 Corinthians 3.6. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, and the Spirit giveth life. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit was giving and bringing life. And as a church, we should always desire that. That should always be the goal that we're working on, that we're sharing Christ in a way that the Spirit is able to bring life. And, and when we desire that, it has to, we have to go about it the right way, though. Again, we don't get to make up the rules. We have to do it according to the Word of God. And so to be able to do that, correctly to be able to do that according to God's instruction, it starts with the right foundation. This is the first factor in the church done right, the right foundation. And that foundation, very simply, is God's word. God's word. Everything we do has to be built upon our faith, our trust, and in this book. Everything. So look back at verses 41 and the beginning of verse 42. It says, then, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You see, the life being added was because they received Peter's word, which was God's word. And they didn't just receive it. They gladly received it. Joyfully. So they were baptized that same day, and that was the answer from Peter. They were just obeying Peter. It was the answer to the question, what do we do now? Now that we've crucified the Messiah. And 3,000 responded to God's word through Peter. And so just, I mean, just think about that day. I mean, 3,000 baptisms. And, and I don't know if all, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I don't know if all 12 apostles were, you know, participating these baptisms, but let's say they were. That's 250 each. Each of those guys baptized 250 people. And if, you know, and there's time it takes to transition from people, you know, let's say it took each baptism, let's say it took two minutes. That's 500 minutes or eight hours and 20 minutes 
And that's assuming no breaks. And I obviously have no idea how it took. Maybe it was much shorter than that. But whatever it was, four hours, eight hours, it doesn't matter. That's quite a day. That's quite a day. And they were all part of it together based on their obedience to God's word. And when God is working and God is moving and God is bringing life, that is an exciting, exciting thing to see and it's an exciting thing to be a part of. So, and it was all based upon their obedience to God's word. But it wasn't only this initial obedience because it was also their continued obedience. That's what verse 42 says. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And again, that doctrine would have been different than our doctrine. But it doesn't matter. The point is they continued in what God had for them to do. And there's an important word that's used here. It's a very important Bible word. It says they continued steadfastly. And, and this word's important. It's important to understand. Um, and it's an important King James word used almost exclusively in the King James. And it means to persevere. I think I put that on your outline sheet. It means to persevere, to be fixed, to be firm or secure. And we see this word or, or some form of it 20 three times in the Bible. And I want to show you a few of them because the Bible has, does you know, a good job of defining itself. I, just, I mean, I just gave you a definition, but I want you to see how the Bible defines it through, through its use. So look at 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so we see it here and we see it next to a synonym which is unmovable. So in the context, if you, if, to define the word and, and put it in the context of Acts 2.42, that means they wouldn't be moved off the doctrine that the apostles taught them. They wouldn't allow themselves. They were unmovable. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They weren't going to be moved off of it. They believed it, and they were going to stick to it. They weren't going to be swayed, let me put it this way, the way Paul puts it for us, by every wind of doctrine. He tells us that. He warns us of that in Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Carried about, moved off of. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And, and as Paul puts it, that's a mark of a child in the faith. He says, we, listen, it's time for us to grow up. We don't need to be children. We need to understand what the word of God has to say. And we need to be firm and secure and stand on that. And not move off of it. And that's what we stand on and it's what we base our life on. Another time that a form of the word steadfast is used is in Luke 9, 51. And this is speaking as Jesus is preparing himself for his inevitable death. When he's, he's moving into Jerusalem, right? He's been all around. He's, he's making his way into Jerusalem uh, for, for, you know, where this is inevitably going to end. And, and he has to get himself prepared. And in Luke 9, 51, it says, And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face. And the prophetic picture, we see a prophetic picture of this in the book of Isaiah. 
It's Isaiah 50 and verse seven. And that says, for the Lord God will help me. This is Isaiah speaking, but this prophetic picture of, of Christ. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confounded. Therefore, have I set my face, right? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. And that gives us some more insight into the word. Flint is a rock. It's having a rock solid determination to stay true to God's will that is found in his word. Because what was he doing as he, as he was going into Jerusalem? He was obeying his father's will to ultimately go to the cross. And so it's having that rock solid determination that listen, I'm gonna stay inside God's will. I'm gonna live my life according to God's will, which is found in God's word. Then another example is 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, assuming, uh, seeking whom he may devour, right? We, we know this verse. Then verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So here, we see the word steadfast connected to spiritual warfare and resisting and fighting the devil. And we do that as we are steadfast in our faith or grounded solidly in God's word. We're grounded in it and upon it. And that is the example we see with Jesus throughout the gospel. So the, the best example, and we don't have time to go all the way through it, but the best example is when he was tempted by the devil after he came out of the wilderness fasting 40 days and 40 nights, right? You can see that in Matthew chapter four. You can see it also in Luke chapter four. And he's, he hasn't eaten, had anything. He's fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. And the devil comes to tempt him at, in that weak moment. And he offers him, you know, he offers him the kingdom. He offers him all these different things. And how does Jesus fight back? He does it by quoting scripture. His response to each temptation was, it is written. It is written. It is written. Why? Because he was firm. He was grounded in God's word. And he knew the Old Testament. And he, he wouldn't move off of it. And that is the definition of remaining steadfast in the faith during spiritual attack. And so it's a strong word. And it's used in time that security, firmness are needed. It's strength through putting on and applying the mind of Christ, which is the word of God. In fact, the first mention of a form of the word steadfast in the Bible gives us that exact context. The first mention is found in, in Ruth 1.18. If you don't know the story, many of you do. Ruth lost her husband. She's wanting to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's going back to Judah. Uh, they're in Moab. Naomi tells her she should stay in Moab, uh, but, but, but Ruth isn't, she's gonna go. She's gonna go with Naomi. And in Ruth 1, verse 18, we see this. It says, and when she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was steadfastly, look at the next word, steadfastly minded to go with her. Then she left speaking unto her. You see, everything we're talking about with respect to this word, it all starts and it's connected to our mind and specifically our mind living and abiding by the mind of Christ. Because without the mind of Christ, we can't and we will not be steadfast. 
that is true of you, that is true of me, and that is true of this church. It is why the foundation of all we do must be God's word. Everything has to be built off of that foundation, not the other way around. And listen, you see this throughout scripture. Everything starts with doctrine. Everything starts with doctrine. It doesn't mean that doctrine is the only thing that's important. There's other things that are important. How we practically apply it, all important. But there's a foundation that we can't waver on, that we can't compromise on. It's biblical doctrine. And even in lists throughout the Bible, the talk about the word of God itself, you see it listed first, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But what's listed first? It's doctrine. When Paul talked about all that he invested into Timothy, just a few verses earlier in 2 Timothy 3.10, pay attention to what's listed first. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Doctrine is first because that is the foundation of all that the church does. You see, the failure of the church in Laodicea today is the failure to hold the good doctrine. It is a failure to rightly divide God's word. And it is a failure to adhere to biblical authority. And that's always been the fight. All the way back to Genesis chapter three. It's always been the fight. It's been the fight for believers. It's been the fight for churches. That is why steadfastness is required. And why I took 10 minutes, I don't even know how long I took, to go through those verses for you. It's why steadfastness is required because this is the fight. Listen, it was the fight for the Jerusalem church as well because here's what you're gonna find out. Here's what you're gonna find out as an individual. Here's what you're gonna find out as a church. And you're gonna find it out fairly quickly. When you hold the biblical authority, when you hold the good doctrine, others don't like it. It's because the devil doesn't like it. And it didn't take long for people to start fighting against them, against the apostles and, and the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Because everything's great in Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 2. I mean, they're adding to, adding to the church daily. Things are going great. But look at what happens, and it happens before this actually, but look at Acts chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. And when they had brought them as the apostles, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And listen to this next sentence. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Talking about Jesus. So what were they upset at? They were upset at the doctrine. They didn't like them talking about Jesus for who he was and what he did and what they did in response to him coming. And I'm telling you, your position on this Bible may very well, and I, I even would say likely, cause division and attack in your life. And, and, and I certainly understand that. I have felt that firsthand. All I can say, to, if you're in that fight now, 
and there's division and, and it's based on doctrine, it's based on rightly dividing God's word. The only encouragement I can tell you, I, I'm not pretending it's easy. I'm not pretending that, that you know, those are, those, are, those are certainly difficult waters to navigate. All I can tell you is it's better to be right with God than right with man. That's all I can say. And you just have to reconcile that within your life. I've, I've been down that road. I've reconciled that. I've reconciled that with this church. And so my goal is that we glorify God by keeping and holding to the firm foundation that we have in God's perfect and preserved word. And we just won't move off of it. And that's the basis for everything. But listen, then once we have this down, then we can move on because these next three factors that we're gonna look at, if we, we, we get the foundation laid, then we can build off of the foundation. But if we don't lay this foundation right, oh man, then the, the walls are gonna crumble. <laughs> and so there's nothing we can do right. If we miss the foundation, if we skip this part, we can never do the others that we're getting ready to look at correctly because that is the foundation. But what we see from here, the next three points are what we build off of that. Again, in the context of a church done right, all right, we gotta get the foundation done right. It's God's word, his true word, rightly divided. We're gonna stick to it. That's, what we're, that's, that's how we're gonna move forward. But then we're gonna build off of it some things. And the next factor that we see in our text is they had the right fellowship. Okay, so after we build the foundation, now we can look internally and we can see the right fellowship. And this fellowship is specifically described in, in verse 42. So they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And then again down in verses 44 through 40, 46. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And the fellowship of believers in these verses, it's, it's tied every time, it's tied to spending time together. It's tied to praying together. It's tied to rejoicing together with gladness and singleness of heart. It's based off of the foundation and the unity they had in the word of God and in the God of the word. And I point that out because, you know, Christian fellowship is, is defined many by many ways. And depending on, you know, who, who you talk to, you can get a different definition of fellowship. You know, one of my favorites is two fellows in the same ship. You've probably probably heard that one. Now, there's something to that, but it's not, it's not, it's not quite enough. Um, some people think a fellowship of, is sh of just sharing a meal together. That's why, that's why churches, you know, have fellowship halls, because what are we going to do in the fellowship hall? We're going to eat. We're going to have potluck dinner. Like, that's just what we're going to do, especially if we're Baptist. And so, you know, that's, there's that. And, and, and we do joke about that, but the truth is there is actually something to that in the Bible. We see that here in Acts chapter two as fellowship is tied and connected to the breaking of bread. Most people, most commentaries you read will connect that to communion. And, and while they might have done that, maybe, probably not, contextually, verses 42 and 46 is just referring to sharing meals together. There is, there is something about coming together and sharing food. And that's because God's always, always painting pictures. He's the best artist ever. 
And so what he's doing is, is he wants us, when we do that, he wants us to see the picture. And food in the Bible is a picture of God's word. Food in the Bible is a picture of God's word. We see that throughout scripture. And, and, and you can look up those verses on your own. I don't have time to take you through all of them, but over and over various types, corn, honey, and meat, and all of it, all of it. And so it's, food in the Bible is, pictured, uh, is a picture of God's word. And the picture that God wants us to see as we share time together over a meal is the unity that we have in his word. So that's legit. But, but sharing a meal isn't the totality of fellowship. It's just, it's just God wants us to see the picture in it. And in fact, when you study fellowship in Scripture, what you find is that, first of all, fellowship is two-dimensional. It, it begins vertically with us and the Father and then extends horizontally to other believers in Christ. And the thing that is the hinge for both of those connections is Jesus Christ himself. So we see this in 1 John chapter 1. In verse 3, John says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then you skip down to verse 7 if we, in 1 John chapter 1. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his sons, cleanses us from all sins. Paul provides some more insight, some more light into this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. Which says, God is faithful by whom you were called under the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so all fellowship begins with us and God the Father. And when we get that right, through his son, we can have fellowship with each other. So if we don't get the vertical right, we're never going to have the horizontal right. But, so that's where it starts. And then it plays out practically in, in many ways. Now, first of all, no surprise here because it's the foundation, it's connected back to doctrine. If we don't think the same about what God's word says, well, okay, well then our fellowship is going to be off, right? And so you see that, and let me just give you a couple examples. So it's connected to things like the gospel, that's doctrine. Philippians 1.5, Paul said he thanked God for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. It's connected to things like suffering, that's doctrine, because there's absolutely a doctrine of suffering that the church of today, certainly the, especially the American church, doesn't fully understand or, or want to grasp, but there is a doctrine of suffering. And Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. You see, fellowship is much deeper than just sharing a meal together or Two fellows in the same ship together. Fellowship, and this is just my definition, fellowship is sharing life together in Jesus Christ. The sharing life together in Jesus Christ is sharing ministry. It's sharing the hard times we experience because of the ministry. And when we do that, it draws us closer to each other and it draws us closer to God because we're in prayer together and we're in the word together. And we see in verses 44 and 45, that they were so close to each other that they had all things common and shared their possessions. They sold their goods to give to others. And there's a sacrificial aspect of this that we can certainly learn from, but, but I do want to tell you this here, these two verses, is another example of verses that are misused or just explained away because people don't know what to do with them. 
But when you put them in their proper doctrinal context, you don't have to do either. You can make them make sense by just comparing Scripture with Scripture. So first of all, these verses have been used by liberal theologians to promote some type of you know, Christian communism or, or some type of communal living. Well, well, that's not biblical for us. I'll show you that in just a second. So that's the first abuse. And then others, like we talked about last week, don't really know what to make of these verses because right, the birth of the church and the church is living together and they're selling their stuff and they're sharing. And like, well, I really don't want to do that. And so I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to explain it. So, so all they say is, well, that, you know, that was just cultural. It was just a cultural thing. You know, you don't, as you go through the book of Acts, you don't even see it later on in the book of Acts. So we obviously don't need to do that today. That was part of the early church and it was cultural. They don't even know what that means. They don't even know what they're saying. Uh, but that's what they say. But the truth is, neither one of those is completely right. There's some truth, there is some truth in both of them, but it's not completely right. You just need to understand the context. And with these guys and these gals in the book of Acts, even though the church had been birthed, they had no clue of that fact. They didn't understand what God was doing. They didn't even know what that meant. If you would have asked them what it meant to be a part of the church, they could not have answered you. Listen, we know. Why? Why do we know it? I've told you this over and over, but I'm going to tell you again. We have the privilege of history, hindsight, looking back on history, and a completed Bible. It's a great privilege that we have today. So we can put it together and we can understand what God was doing. And this is, listen, this is, we haven't even got anywhere close to Acts chapter 7 yet. And, and I know I've mentioned that. Obviously, we'll, we'll get there. This is a different time. They're entering the church a different way. Things are all different. So they had no concept of the church like we do today. They were still looking for Jesus to return and to set up his kingdom. They were still, as we would phrase it, in a kingdom of heaven mindset and context. And they should have been. That was the right thing. And do you know what part of the instruction of Jesus was when he was on the earth and he was preaching how the kingdom of heaven was at hand? It's just this sort of thing. Look at Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 22. And we, the, this passage, you can see it in Matthew also, and we use it for us. And it's not inappropriate. It's just sometimes it's, we just pull it out of its proper doctrinal context. It's proper to apply this practically for us. There's so many great lessons. But listen, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, and he is Jesus, said unto his disciples, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on, the life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. And you know, we see this in Matthew, and we just, you know, we just, we, we, we make these applications. Man, take no thought for your life. It doesn't matter what you eat, doesn't matter what you drink, doesn't matter what, what you have on. And and that's, that sounds spiritual, except every single person in this room, if you're over the age of 18, say, you take thought of those things every day. Every day. You take thought of what you're going to eat. You take thought of what you're going to put on. And the Bible says not to do that. So why are you doing it? Why are you disobeying the Bible? 
I'll, I'll tell you why. <laughs> but you just have to understand context is important. Okay, so jump, then jump down to verse 29. And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. So Gentiles, that, that's a clue. And your father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather, and this is interesting, because watch the transition. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God. This is a spiritual, right? Kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew chapter six. Fear not, little flock. That's an, that's an important phrase that tells us who we're talking to. It's not us. For it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. That's kingdom of heaven. So we move from kingdom of God to kingdom of heaven. They're both in the king. Okay, so it's it's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. And he wants to do it right now. He wanted to do it right then. So what do you need to do? Well, sell, sell what you have. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's, that's so, that verse is so true, even for us. But when you understand the context, it, you can make it make sense and you don't have to explain things away. You see, they were just following in Acts chapter 2 what Jesus told them to do. Those were the rules they were still playing under. That would have been part of the apostles' doctrine because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was near and available to them. So they didn't need their stuff. And the message was, if you treasure this life, then you're never going to get into the kingdom. And they want it in. So they were just following the word of God the best they knew how. And that's the proper context. So you just have to compare scripture to scripture within context to get God's answers. You don't have to privately interpret or explain it away. But listen, what we can learn and what we can take from this is the care that this church had for each other, a sacrificial care and the time that they spent together. And what we see in Acts 2.46 is that in those early days of the church, they did this daily. And again, listen, that's not necessarily a call for us. God's not calling us to meet together every day because, first of all, our mission's a little bit different. We'll talk about that here in our next point. But God's not calling us to that, but he is calling us to see the picture. And the picture is that our fellowship with each other is absolutely based upon daily fellowship with the Lord. And that goes back to the picture of food. And I, I bet you don't have many days where food isn't involved. I don't remember the last day that food wasn't involved in that day. There, there have been, I, I have had times of fasting in my life, but it's, but it's been a while. There's nearly every day, food's involved in one way or another. And in fact, and, and that's just the picture, right? Every day we're to be in his word. And in fact, we don't, eat one time a day. The average is three meals. We're not even, the average is three meals and we're not even counting snacks. Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> Alice Shelby used to always say, if you can't say amen, say oh me. Nobody will know the difference. 
But listen, there's a picture in eating three times a day as well, because in Jewish tradition, these guys prayed three times a day, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And again, it just builds the picture of fellowship with the Lord, a consistent daily time in the Word of God and in prayer, and it is necessary for fellowship to occur, certainly with the Lord. But that's where it has to start. That vertical relationship is the beginning. And if you're out of fellowship with the Lord, then you're going to be out of fellowship with us. And fellowship is the glue that holds the church together. So here is the key to this point, right? We have the foundation. And this is what we're building off. And uh, uh, these points are what we're building off of the foundation. And the key to this point is the right fellowship shows our love for each other. All right? So a church done right is going to have the foundation of God's word. And then one thing it's going to build off of that is an, an aspect of inreach, right? That we reach out and we care and we love for each other. And we, here we do that through our life groups and, and various methodologies. But a, a church done right is going to be able to care for its members inwardly, all right? So that's, that's the first aspect. We're going to love each other because we love the Word of God together. And we love prayer together. And we love worshiping together. And guess what? We get a chance to do all that tonight. You should come back and be a part of it. So this is the first building block on top of the foundation of, of God's Word. We have the right fellowship. And then next, we see the church done right also has the right fear. Look at verse 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And this is obviously a fear of the Lord because of how God was at work in their midst. And again, this was a transition time. So the apostles, for the first time, were performing wonders and miracles. We see this in the last ver verse of the book of Mark as well. In, in Mark chapter 16 and verse 19, we see Jesus' ascension. And then in verse 20, it says, And then they, the, the, the apostles, went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. And I show you that verse because, because what you see there is the key. It says the Lord was working with them. It was actually him doing the work in and through them. And it caused a fear or an awe of God in everybody that saw it. And that's really, I think, the proper biblical definition of fear in the Bible. Because, and you see that in multiple places. I think the best place, I've showed you this before, but it's worth repeating, is in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 18 through 20, God had just given Moses the, the, the set of the Ten Commandments. And then in verse 18, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they were moved and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, fear not, for God has not come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not, all right? So this gives us a lot of information about the fear of the Lord. And what we learn here is that, first of all, fearing God shouldn't necessarily make us afraid. Now, there are things that, that we should be afraid of. You, you should be afraid of going to hell. Um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, people just using, you know, salvation as a fire escape from hell. Well, uh, okay, you can argue whether that's the best reason or not, but if you're not scared of hell, well, that, that's, a, that's a problem. <laughs> I mean, we should have some fear of 
of the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians five calls it the terror of the Lord, right? And so, so there's you know there's some fear associated with that, especially if you don't live your life in accordance with God's word and, and serving Him with the life that He's given us. And but but that's never God's goal, right? The 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 goal here is that fearing God isn't to make us afraid. Moses said, "Fear not." But instead, this godly fear should drive us to, to, uh, to living a life that's glorifying to him, should drive us to being holy. Because he says that his fear may before your fa- be before your faces, that ye sin not. Right? That's the goal of the fear of God. See, God wants us to have an intimate understanding of who he really is, and he wants to put that before our faces. He wants to put it right in front of us. And when that happened here in Exodus chapter 20 to the children of Israel, they wanted to run away from it. Verse 18 says they removed and stood afar off. They were scared to death. But Moses said, don't run away from the Lord. Run to him. So when you see God for who he really is, that will shake you. It's a natural result. And and the resulting fear of God gives you, and here's, here's why it shakes us. It gives us an understanding of who we are. It gives you an understanding of who you are in light of God. And who we are in light of God, not much. And that understanding should drive us to really just one conclusion, that he's worthy of anything and everything he asks. And see, God's desire is that understanding that, understanding that fear and having that awe and and, and it, it drives us to him. In awe and worship, God never wants us to run away from him. That's never God's plan. That's never God's desire. He always wants us to run to him and to get right with him and to get clean before him. So you see this. The goal is, is always to produce holiness. And you see that throughout scripture. So 2 Corinthians 7, 1, for example, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, how? In the fear of God. And and you see this just consistently throughout Scripture. The fear of the Lord is connected to keeping his commandments, to staying clean, to staying holy, to departing evil. So, for example, Proverbs 16.6, By mercy and truth iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. So these are always connected. Proverbs 14.27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the stairs of death. And and, and that's 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 a sobering verse because you see just the contrast of a fountain and a snare. You see the contrast of life and death. And listen, this is, this is very important when it comes to ex- exhibiting this, this right fear uh, to this point. Because the truth is, we're going to fear something or someone. I mean, like, you know, many of us in here, I know many of you think you're tough, but you can't escape fear. You just have to know how to direct it correctly. Because the question is always, do you fear the Lord or do you fear man? And it's critically important to get right, because one fear is a fountain and one is a snare. And one leads to life, and the other leads to death. And I say that because the snares of death are connected with and defined by the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare. Whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe, right? Remember Proverbs 14, 27? The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Depart from the snares of death. And the fear of man is that snare. It's a snare of death. So ultimately, this all comes down to who are we going to fear? Where are we going to place our fear? I told you before, all I, can, you know, all I can say is better to be right with God than man. It's better to fear God than it is to fear man. 
And, and, and when I talk about fearing man, that includes yourself, because look at what Proverbs 3, 7 is, says. Be not wise in thine own eyes. All right, be not wise in thine own eyes. So what's the opposite of that? Well, fear the Lord. Because if you're wise in your own eyes, you're fearing yourself. You're fearing man. You're in awe. Again, in the context of you're in awe of man. You're in awe of yourself. In contrast to being in awe of God. Be not wise in your own eyes. No, fear the Lord. And look at the last part. And depart from evil. You see, the truth is you just can't have it both ways. And so there's true wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. There's tr- godly sorrow, there's biblical sorrow. And, and bi- godly sorrow and godly wisdom leads to holiness and worldly sorrow and worldly wisdom leads to evil and death. And those are all based on fear. Do you fear God? Hopefully so. And hopefully it's because of the awe of what he is doing in our midst. That's where the fear of, came from in Acts chapter two. He was at work and it was amazing to see it and be a part of it. So the key to this point is that the right fear shows our love for the Lord. Okay, so again, we're building something, right? We have the foundation. It's God's word. And the first thing is we build our our fellowship, the right fellowship. So a church done right loves each other, right? Has the right inreach. You gotta have a right fear of God. You gotta love the Lord right. So this is our upreach, right? So, So we have our inreach. We have our upreach. You probably know where we're going in our next point. But again, this is all built off the foundation. Build the right fellowship, shows our love for each other. Build the right fear, shows our love for the Lord. And there's one more piece, one more factor for a church done right, and that's the right focus. And we see this factor in verses 46 and 47. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. And here we see a key phrase at the end of verse 46. They were all in singleness of heart. And earlier in that verse, we see that phrase with one accord that we've talked about before, right? This is the third time we see it in the book. We also already read how they had all things common. You see, they were together. They were single-hearted. They were single-minded. And that's good because according to James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And they weren't double-minded, and neither should we be. We need a singular focus like this Acts 2 church. And we see what the singular focus is in verse 47. Look there one more time. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You see, the focus was praising or glorifying God and the adding of the church through salvations. Now, there's interesting terminology in that phrasing that gives us another dispensational clue. Verse 47 says, such as should be saved. And that's interesting. It doesn't mean like hoping they would be saved. We think they will. You know, they should be. They're not, but they should be. No, it means they will be saved. There's a, such a should be saved. There's a future application to it. And that gets to how they were brought into the church, right? How were, how were these folks being brought into the church? Through the baptism of repentance. Okay, but we're staying practical today. You can study all that out on your own. It's very interesting though. But the singular focus they all had of glorifying God and praising God and bringing people into the church, that was the mission. They were focused on the mission of God, to be witnesses of Christ, and they were all about it. And we need to be all about the mission as well. 
And our mission is to worship God by making disciples who exalt his word, edify his body, and are equipped to evangelize the world. That is the mission statement of this church. Because what the Bible outlines for us. That needs to be our singular focus with respect to, to as we look out. For all of us, you see, Christianity isn't to be viewed from the sidelines or, or from the pews. We're all to be involved. We're all to be involved together in the mission. That's what the church is. A body working together according to God's word to give God glory. It's not just a group of religious people who gather once a week to enjoy a worship service. What we're doing today is great. It's necessary. But this isn't the mission. This is our preparation. This is our encouragement. This is our challenge to then go back out and live it out there. So we're a group of people who share the same life. We belong to the same Lord. We're filled with the same spirit. We've been given gifts by that spirit. And, and the intention is that we then function together since we're all one in these areas, the, the, the intention is that we function together to change the world by the power of Christ. That is the work of the church. What we're doing here is part, but this isn't the work of the church. And you signed up for the work of the church when you placed your faith in Jesus and linked arms with us. And I'm aware that many people think, listen, I, I'm okay with being saved, but I'm not, I can't be involved beyond that. I don't even know what I have to offer. It's a personal thing. Like, I don't, I don't know that be involved in the mission, making disciples, doing all that. And I don't know that that's for me. Well, listen, according to Paul, you shouldn't even give yourself that option. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, you're, you are, at the point you place your faith in Jesus Christ, is, you know, it's, you're signing up for that military service. And, I, you know, I know many of you in here, I've not, but many of you in here have been in the military and, and I, I, don't, I don't know how many options you get once, you're, you know, once you've signed on the dotted line. Uh, how many options you get to say, you, you, you know what, I don't, I'm not feeling it today. I, don't. I mean, I know everybody else, like, it's good for them. It's good for them to be involved, but I think I'm just going to stay in my bunk today. That's what I'm going to do. I might, maybe I'll, maybe I'll show up on Sunday. I, are we doing something on Sunday? I'll come. Maybe. I mean, some Sundays, not every Sunday, of course. I mean, that's ridiculous. But um, I'll come some. I'll come some. I don't, I don't know, man. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Well, we're out of time. But read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 on, through 20 on your own. And if you come to that conclusion, come talk to me. I'd love, I'd love to have a discussion with you about that. <laughs> but listen, because the, the fact is God made this for us all to work together. And when you're not involved, we all suffer. You have, you have something to offer that I don't. And listen to me very carefully. When you're not involved, not only do we suffer, the mission suffers. Everyone wants to be involved. That's why the emphasis is singleness and oneness. So here's the key to this point, and then, and then we'll, I'll be done. This third factor we build off of the foundation. It's the right focus shows our love for the world. And so that's our outreach. So we have a foundation. It's God's word. We have the right inreach, love and care for each other the right fellowship together based on word and praying together as we define that. We have the right upreach. We're in awe of the Lord. We fear the Lord. And so we, we view him correctly according to what the word of God has to say. And then we have the right outreach. 
we love him enough and we love the world enough to go out and tell the world about him. And until we're doing all of those things based on the foundation of the word of God, we're not doing church right. That's church done right. You got to have all of it. So let me ask you, are you helping or hindering to that end? Is the church not growing more because you're not a part? Because you're not involved in the mission? Or are you part of the solution? Man, I hope you're a part of the solution, not a hindrance to what the Lord wants to do through us. But we all better analyze that and ask ourselves those hard questions. And if you're part of the problem, change. Come help us turn this city and turn this world upside down. Because that's the goal of a church done right.